Turn with me in your Bibles, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. And we are starting a new series last week, or we did start a new series called Divine Love. We'll be spending this semester talking about love. And in a few weeks, we're going to actually spend um, some time digging into 1 Corinthians 13, hands down the most convicting chapter, I think, in the entire Bible. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about divine love, God's love. And uh, last week was part one. We dealt with 1 John chapter 4, 7. And uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of reminder of what we talked about. But if you were not here last week, I want you to just do me a favor. Um, would you go listen to that sermon um, if you're at all curious, but especially if you have any intention of jumping into a community group, um, it will really help you understand and be able to fully engage what is actually um, happening in the discussion. And uh, one of the main parts of our community group ministry is we take the sermon from Sunday and we just go deeper because we don't believe the Word of God is something we just throw out and then walk away from. We believe it needs to be thought about, prayed over, uh, applied in every aspect of our life. And so that's one of the goals of community groups. So um, I want to encourage you to go back and check that out. And uh, so what we saw when we um, defined love last week is we looked through six words in the Old Testament and New Testament that the Bible uses to describe love. And we talked about the foundations of love and the benefits of love. And what we need to do when we define the biblical understanding of love is make a very clean distinction between these two things. And I want to give you a brief review on each of these. And the first one is ahava. This is a love that is a choice. This is a love of the will best illustrated in parenting when you have a son or daughter before they have done anything good or bad. You look at this child not knowing the inevitable rebellion, frustration, and heartache that will ensue. You look at this child and say, I ahavayu. I choose to love you no matter how much pain you put me through. The second is hesed. This is a covenantal love. It is based on a promise. This is best illustrated in marriage where a husband looks at a wife and a wife looks at a husband and says, I promise to love you no matter what you do, no matter what you become, I promise to give you my best. And this is, again, best understood in the context of marriage. And then we looked at agape. Agape is the Greek New Testament word, which means sacrificial love. This seems to be the pinnacle word in Scripture for love. And it is this beautiful, sacrificial, life-giving love that is perfectly found in God. So now these are the foundations. These are the basis of what biblical love is. And when we experience these, there are benefits that inevitably come. And the first benefit is philia, which is Philadelphia, city of brotherly, fill in the blank, love. This is a friendship bond. Philia is a benefit. It is a result of the foundations of love. You get to the second word, which is storge. This is a familial bond. You'll notice that you have a certain love for your friends, right? But then there's another level of love for your family. You know what I'm saying? You mess with my friends, we're going to have an issue. You mess with my family, I'm going to take you down, right? Can I get an amen from any of the protective people in this room? And then there's eros. This is sexual love reserved for the context of marriage. And what we in this culture love to do is we love to pursue the benefits of love without the foundations of love. And if you pursue the benefits of love, you get immediate pleasure but inevitable death. And this, this is the problem. We look at every high school student, 
a junior high student, a college age student who are dating and they're pursuing and we look at them and we say, I know you want Eros and I know you think that if you get Eros now, right, it will get you Ahava and Hesed and Agape, but it won't. When you invert these things, immediate pleasure, inevitable death, immediate pleasure, inevitable death. You get it? Immediate pleasure, inevitable death. And we deceive ourselves because for a time it's easy and it's fun, but we don't count the cost until later. Some people look at us and us older folk, you know, we're like, you know, you got to protect sexuality, save it for marriage, and we look irrelevant like we're old fogies. But guess what? Most of you in this room, been there, done that. You've experienced the pain, the tragedy in your life, in your family's life, in your friend's life of what happens when you pursue the benefits without the foundations. And so when the Bible speaks of love, it's bigger than our English word. It's nuanced. And every time you see the, love, the word love in the Bible, you've got to stop. You've got to ask yourself, what kind of love are we speaking about? And then we get to 1 John chapter 4, and we find this phrase, God is love. And the word is agape. And it starts off, and it says this, beloved, agape tas. This is a word. He's talking to Christians. And John says, you who are sacrificially, beautifully, compellingly loved by God. And then he says, let us love one another. And we preached on this all last week, so this is all I'm going to say about this. But love is from God. If you find agape, sacrificial love, anywhere, where does it originate from? Answerville Church? God. Now here's one of the nuances that John wants you to get and we have to make clear. God is love. And all love originates in God. And what John wants you to know is that those who have the Holy Spirit, who is love, have the capacity for divine love. And one of the hard things about what the Bible says about love is this, is there's, there's a lot of horizontal love going on. There's a lot of, we'll say, love that appears divine on the surface. But only the Christian filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with God himself, is able to be a conduit of divine love, where love originates in heaven, um, comes through the Holy Spirit in us, and then is expressed. And so here's what you understand. As a Christian, for the first time, when you come to Jesus, you, for the first time, have the capacity of divine love, God's love being birthed in you and then living through you. And so we get to question number two, and this is where we're really going to kick off this morning. Question number two. How can I truly love? I mean, believers, let's just talk to Christians in the room for a moment. Do you ever feel like your love falls massively short of your own expectations? Like, did any of you husbands think you were going to be a better husband? Like, ladies, did you think when you got married you were going to be a rock star wife? Like, are you surprised sometimes at the lack of agape love that comes out of you? Nobody's acknowledging anything to me right now. I'm just going to tell you right now, personally, I am amazed. My wife has been amazed. She thought I would be a better husband. Amen, ladies? Not me, but your own husbands, right? I would say it to the dudes, but I'm not going to put any dude in a position to say anything negative about his wife right now. But, uh, but truly, we fall short even of our own expectations, and we do tons of marriage counseling, and most couples need it, whether or not they'll get it or not. And really, you get down to it, and it's like, how... Can I really love this wicked, rebellious, you know, she's a Christian, yes, he's a Christian, sinner? How can I really do this? And here's the answer. I want to start, and then we're going to unpack this answer. You will never 
have the kind of love, divine love, for your spouse or anyone until you trust in Jesus. I want you to just hear this. Some of you are in this room and your husband or your wife drag you to church every week. Your mom, your dad, they drag you to church. Maybe, I don't know what brings you here. Maybe you're just kind of curious. Maybe you're an intellectual and you kind of want to figure out what Christians say about themselves. I want you to just hear me. Until you come to Jesus and trust him, you will have no capacity for divine love. Because divine love originates in God and it is expressed through us when we have the Holy Spirit. You cannot have the Holy Spirit unless you trust in Jesus. And I just want to plead with you in the front end of this. Everything I'm going to tell you about divine love is functionally meaningless for you because you don't have the capacity to do it without God's help. You need to trust in Jesus. Are we clear on that? So now, how do you truly love It necessarily starts with trusting in Jesus Christ. But let's read this. Let's read this text. Anyone, verse 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Now what's implied here? If you know God, what will you do? You will love, okay? So if you know God, if you've trusted in Jesus, you will, say with me, love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You get on to verse 16, and here's what it says. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is, what does he say? Love. God is love. You must know God through faith to be able to say this. But I want to be very, very clear for a moment. God is is not agape love to everyone. God is not agape love to everyone. Is God love? Answer, yes. But the only person who can say that is the person who is on the receiving end, the relational end of agape love. This is why he says, beloved. He's talking to Christians. Those of you who are Christians, you can't unequivocally, undeniably look and say this. To me, relationally, in my relationship with God, God is absolutely love. But here, let me give you an illustration. Nobody in hell proclaims, God is love, right? What are they going to say? God is vengeance. God is wrath. God is fury. Those who are followers of Jesus, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we, you, can step back and you can say, God is love. Non-Christians do not experience in the same way as Christians do the agape love of God. I know that's hard for people, but there are a couple misunderstandings that culture has around this idea of God as love. I want to break them down, and I think this will help make it more clear for you. Misunderstanding number one, you'll talk to people and they'll say, "Um, but the Bible says that God loves everybody. And in a sense, does God love everybody? Yes. But the word love isn't as simple as the English word love. Well, which kind of love does he love everybody with? And so we've looked at word studies on love, and I'll give you a theological understanding of love. There's a few different kinds of love with which God loves, and I think as you hear this, you'll understand this and identify with this. Uh, There's what theology calls his providential love that he pours out on everybody, Christian or non-Christian. And it means this, the God who's in control of all things, rain, sun, food, whatever, um, 
God causes the sun to shine on Christians and non-Christians, right? On his worst enemies, the rain falls and they are fed, correct? And so there is a sense in which all of humanity is experiencing an aspect of God's providential love. So Christians, sometimes it feels like we get less of God's providential love, right? Like why, why do all the people out there seem to succeed and get rich and get all this stuff and we're struggling, right? Uh, so there's this sense in which God does love everybody. There's, there's another kind of love in theology. It's called God's electing love, that before someone was even born, before they did anything good or bad, that God put his electing, choosing, ahava, love on some people. And so God can do that. That's a certain kind of love. There's another level of love. It's called God's fatherly love. Does anyone who has rejected Jesus Christ get to live on the receiving end of God's fatherly love? And the answer is no. The requirement for receiving God's fatherly love is being a child of God through faith in Jesus. And so as a Christian, as a pastor, I can look at people and say, in a sense, God loves everyone. Everyone is receiving the benefits of God's love in one way or another. But hear me, Christians, beloved, agapitas, you are receiving uniquely and especially the agape, fatherly, intimate, relational love of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What you experience is very different than what the non-Christian experiences. We can step back and we can say, God is love to me because nothing can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing. It is completely secure. And even in your worst moments where you do the most ridiculous things and you sin huge, you can still in that moment step back and say, God loves me. God is love. But again, nobody in hell will step back and say that. That my relationship with God is defined by his agape, sacrificial love. No. And so you have to understand that this, this is a huge misunderstanding. Misunderstanding number two is this. God is love does not mean that all God is, is love. So some people will say, uh, if I ask the question, what is the pinnacle attribute of God? And they'll say love. And I want to just rewind and say, no, love is an attribute of God. But it is not the pinnacle attribute of God. God is more than love. God is fury. God is vengeance. God is mercy. God is justice. It depends who you are and what you're receiving from God in that moment. But relationally, who God is to us in that moment depends on our relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. There is another, we'll call it overarching, foundational attribute of God, which is at the center of all he is. And that word is holy. The four living creatures in Revelation in heaven sit at the throne room of God, and they don't say, loving, loving, loving. What do they say? Holy, holy, holy. There's a lot of justice in this world. My question is, is it holy justice? There's a lot of vengeance in this world. My question is, is it holy vengeance? There's a lot of love in this world, and I want to know, is it holy love? And so there might even be, we'll call it, shadows of agape love in the non-Christian world. But is it holy? And this is what separates God's love from every other kind of love on the planet. This is what separates God's justice, wrath, mercy, and fury from human justice, wrath, mercy, and fury. Is that every time God enters into these attributes or exhibits these attributes, they are flawless, sinless, perfect, righteous, 
and holy. And so when we step back and we say God is, what, what is the defining, all-consuming, biggest attribute of God uh, under which all other attributes fall? The word is not love. The word is holy. What makes God's love so amazing is that it is holy, perfect love. To the question, how can I truly love? Number one, you come to faith in Jesus Christ. You come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as you grow and know God, the God who is love, as you grow to understand personally what he has done for you, you will give it away. I want you to hear this. The extent to which you love with agape divine love is the extent to which you understand what God has done for you. The greatest thing that I can tell you to do if you want to grow in divine love is to immerse yourself daily in what God has done for you. And those of you in this room who you believe you have mastered full understanding of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you are flat wrong, and it's why you're not loving well. You can spend the rest of your life uncovering the depths of the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his holiness and your sinfulness and what God did for you by giving his son. On one level, it's a set of propositions. On another level, it is the most intense, deep um, doctrine that you could possibly find and the depth to which you understand it, not just here in your head, but in your heart is the extent to which you will give it away. So the best thing I can tell you is that those who know God, they love, and your job is to know God and to know him deeply. And the greater your knowledge, and I don't mean just facts, I mean intimate knowledge of growing in your relationship with God and what he's done for you, you will watch your love grow. It's be amazing. Question number three. Why is there so much death in my relationships? I am amazed at how much death can come out of my relationships and your relationships. Have you ever just looked around and been like, man, there are just a lot of wounded souls um, in my trail? Some of you are like, nope, can't relate at all. Uh, If you start engaging humanity more than just like your spouse or your one friend, you will find you will inevitably hurt people and be hurt by people. Somebody, you can give me an amen on that one, right? (laughs) Divine love, when it flows through you, creates life. Sometimes not immediately. But the end result of persevering, divine, sacrificial, agape love is that the result in people around you is life. You create atmospheres of life. Conversely, if you are selfish and you live for yourself, do you know what will happen? Atmospheres of death. You will harm and hurt people. You will use people. And you will not experience the kind of life that God has intended you to live, create, experience, or give to other people. I'll just start there with the foundation. Why is there so much death in my relationships? Because we have not learned divine love yet. Or we've learned it so minimally that it has not begun to impact the people in my life. So let's read this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might, what's the word? Live through him. I want to just walk through this verse with you, and then we're going to get to the answer of the question, okay? And so right at the end of verse 8, before this, the words were three, three beautiful words. God is 
love. And verse 9 is going to prove this to you. So if you want proof that God is love, you read verse 9. In this is love. Here's how you know that God is love, because this is what he did. The love of God was made manifest. We saw the reality that God is love. It was made clear or visible among us. In this, here's how you know, here's the proof that God sent his only son into the world. So Christians, here's our problem. We're numb to this phrase. You grew up in this Judeo-Christian world and say, yeah, God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, blah, 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 blah. Is that really that big of a deal? On the other hand, you meet somebody who is a foreigner who does not understand or hear this language frequently. They come to America and they hear us talk about God sacrificing and pouring out his wrath and anger on his own son to the point of death so that his enemies could be freed from the power of sin. When you get out of this culture and you hear the gospel message, they don't have the same numbness to this reality that you and I do. And so here's where I want to just help you understand this. No sacrifice, and I know you can agree with this, I know you can get this, but no sacrifice is more personal, emotional, or long-lasting than that of a mom or dad sacrificing to death their child. Okay? Can we agree on that? Okay? Painful, gut-wrenching. In fact, some of you are right now thinking, what, what would be a possible scenario where I would have to actually allow my child to be murdered for the benefit of an enemy. And we're going to get there. I want to help you make sense of that in a moment. But I want you to catch this, that God sacrificed his son. So whatever relationship you have with your son or your daughter, however emotional it can be, do you know that God's affection and protection and love for Jesus is infinitely greater than whatever shadow you're experiencing in your love for your children, okay? So the pain and the gut-wrenching reality that you're imagining in yourself, God's is greater, okay? Because the reason you have that is because you're made in the image of God, and he wanted you to have just an emotional glimpse of what the gospel really means. And so we stop, and we're like, wow, like, what scenario would I possibly do that? But whatever it is, God found in his righteousness a scenario that was legitimate and compelling enough that he would execute his son and pour out his full wrath for the freedom of some enemies. So that should be, that should be sort of shocking. I mean, truthfully, um, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable because every, every conception of God and religions around the world is that we exist um, to make God happy and he's really fickle and is he going to be happy today? I don't know, are my good works that way, my bad works? And Christianity says, no, God condescended himself and gave his best, most personal, emotional, uh, we'll say, entity of thing in his life for someone else's benefit. The gospel should just strike us here. I'll give you just an analogy that I think would help I can't imagine, on the one level, I can't imagine a world where uh, my son and I have um, an awesome relationship, and we're both adults, okay? And so uh, my daughter, I have a couple, but one of them, pick a random one. My daughter rebels, hates me. Some of you know this circumstance, by the way. Some of you, your children hate you. They don't speak to you. They don't want to be near you. Your daughter runs. You are her worst enemy. I am her worst enemy. I'm just imagining this scenario. I mean, it's, it's just gut-wrenching. And I have a lost son or daughter. And I'm not just talking about a lost friend who, you know, once when we were childhood friends, we were buddies, and then they walked away and don't like me. I'm talking, like, my own flesh and blood, whom I created with my wife, right? So, like, this little girl of mine is running away, and she hates me. She doesn't want anything to do with me. And every time I call her, she ignores me, and she sends me terrible letters and rejects every motion of love toward her. That, and I'm imagining this world where, um, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I'm trying to give you a scenario where you might understand what's going on, where a father might actually kill 
his son. And so the son is kidnapped, or the daughter's kidnapped. And the kidnapper hates me. I'm a pastor. I preached some message, really made, it, made this murderer mad, this kidnapper, and says, I'm going to kill your daughter. And I go to them and I say, hey, would you take my son instead? And me and the son talk, and he says, I'll go. I will go. Because remember, Jesus was willing. Jesus was not a victim. Jesus and the Father, in all maturity, in all knowledge, made a decision together. We think of Jesus like a little baby who was getting sacrificed. Like, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And they had an adult conversation, if we could even use that lingo, where the son agreed and said, I will go, because the only way your lost prodigal sons or daughters will be able to come home is if there is some kind of exchange here, and I will pay the price for their sins. And I imagine, I'm sitting there, and you know what? I could imagine a world where I'd look at my son and he would look at me and say, I'll go. I'll, I will take it. If, if, if the, the kidnapper kills her, she'll go to hell. She'll go to hell. I'll take her place. Call the kidnapper and see if he'll take it. Now, the analogy isn't perfect. Don't look into all the theological implications. Okay? Like, I'm not saying that God had to do a battle with Satan and then he had to exchange with Satan. I'm not saying that. I'm just giving you an analogy where there's a scenario where a father and a son would agree to sacrifice the son if it could mean the salvation of a lost, rebellious son or daughter. Here's what I wouldn't do it for. I wouldn't do it for somebody who's a general acquaintance, right? And here's what I think happens in our mind, right? We forget, right, that God created every man and woman, and they're not just general acquaintances. They are rebellious, meaning, okay? If someone rebels, there once was something that was intended not to be that way. They're running from something where there's an ideal world. The ideal world is that you're a son or you're a daughter, and you're running away from that. And so it's not that God sent his son Jesus to die for random acquaintances. God sent Jesus, and Jesus and the Father um, agreed mutually that Jesus would pay the price for his brothers and sisters' humanity who needed a payment. That's how it happened. Now imagine you're a dad, and you're looking at your son, and you have to give your son over to take the place of your daughter who is a rebel who hates you and won't even speak to you. It's counterintuitive, and there's a little part of us that says, forget her. Forget her. She's going to run away from me. She's going to play that game. On the other hand, there's a part of you that just knows, you know what? Son, I know you're going to be fine. And I can't think of anything more gut-wrenching. But if it gives me another shot, I'll do it. And so I can imagine a scenario where, with all of the emotion you can muster, a dad would kill his son to redeem or to save a rebellious son or daughter. Now, in the divine economy, in the real world of things, it's not that quite simple, but I think it is. God loves you, rebellious son, rebellious daughter. And Jesus and the Father knew the only way that your sins could be paid for is if Jesus took that punishment. So Jesus willingly did it. And the Father, with much pain and justice, poured out his wrath on Jesus so that rebellious sons and daughters could be brought back to him and made righteous. And so I stepped back in that analogy, and I said, I, I, I get that. And I look at this, and this is the love of God was made manifest. You want proof that God loves you? A dad, the divine dad, executed his divine son, perfect and flawless, so that you, his enemy, could have eternal life. So you say it like that. It's not just Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and anybody who believes can have. That's true, but we're numb. Here's what he says. That God sent his only Son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. There's a principle here I think is just so beautiful. Divine, sacrificial, agape love produces life. Now, you do it once, and you're like, why aren't you happy? 
right? And I would just say, practically speaking, enduring divine sacrificial love creates atmospheres of life. And God wants us to get this. So when we look at the cross, the pinnacle example of love in all of human history, it's a sacrifice that begets eternal life. And I look at most of you and say, well, the reason there's so much death in your relationships, I'll go back to this, is because you're failing at some level to understand what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. When you get that on a deeper level, your love, divine love, agape love, will grow. Question number four. How do I know if my love is God's love? In this is love. He's going to define it now, if you will, by giving an example. So like, you want to know what love is? What are the metrics of love? I'll give you two metrics. We'll read this and give them to you. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath appeasement for our sins. I'm going to drop two metrics for love. Number one, divine love pursues, especially those who have hurt us. In the scenario, we're the sinners who have not loved God. And in the scenario of the gospel, which is clearly drawn out in 1 John 4, we are the rebels running who need to be saved, and God is the pursuer. So number one, does your love pursue those who have hurt you? We did not love God. We were the enemies. We love, if we have agape love flowing through us, not perfectly, but to a degree, we love those, even if they don't love us, accept us, affirm us, or are nice to us. So this is where you know you're starting to get a glimpse of divine love. When your kids, when your spouse, when your friends are belligerent and mean and unkind and hurt you in the deepest levels, you get up and you love. And you still give them your best. And you still sacrifice for them, especially when they don't deserve it. Why? Because that's what you did to God. And metric number two. Divine love gives. Divine love gives its best despite. It's one thing to pursue. You're like, hey, I'm going to half-heartedly pursue. Blah, blah. No. Divine love gives its best. Even, especially when we are getting nothing. Like, so, I told you last week, lucky you, you don't have to teach it. <laughs> you don't have to teach it with your wife in the room. You know? Yours is, your voice isn't getting recorded for anybody to listen to and then for your kids when they're like 15 years old to replay it back for you and be like, Dad, remember when you said this? You don't get divine love. Well, thank you. <laughs> right? So like, I, I want to make crystal clear for you. I am so aggravated at my inability to love well. I, I mean, I hate it. I have been avoiding this series for three years. 
because I was afraid of what God would reveal in me. What I already know, I stink at loving really well. And at some point, you just say, like, my job is not to be the standard of holiness. It is to be a weak, broken vessel who proclaims the word of God with all my shortcomings. And then I, I, I mean, I learned something. Guys who are apparently older than me have gotten this a long time ago, Michael. Like, you don't have, your job is to preach what God's word says. And when you fall massively short, you just own it. And you repent and you repent and you repent. So I want to look at you and say, I know most of you are really terrible at loving your spouse and loving your kids well. I get it, right? I'm right there with you. Some of you are better than others because you know God more and you've understood the depths of the gospel more. I just want to look at you and say, I'm with you. I'm your brother before I'm your pastor a hundred times over. If you don't get that, you miss this whole relationship here. And I want to be a much, much better lover of God, my wife, my kids, my church, my friends. And I know you do too. And so for me, and most dudes are like this, I can't speak for the ladies, but when you break our loyalty, right, we're done. Right? When you violate my trust, we're done. And yet divine love says, Michael, you do this to me all the time. And I'm like, that's not convenient. <laughs> And so I'm looking, at all my, I'm looking at different aspects of my life. And I'm so glad. I want to just be real clear. Enough, I'm so glad God doesn't reveal, even in this message prep, every place in my life where I fall short. I mean, imagine if God had to reveal like, the full extent of all your failures simultaneously. I mean, I would be destroyed. Um, and so even in this process, God is revealing a few things to me. And he's like, you need to give this person what I gave you. I'm like, ah. I want to close with just a warning and an encouragement. Here's the warning. Satan hates this reality. He hates you. He hates this. And he wants you to believe God is unfair. God is withholding. God is unjust. God is selfish. God is a narcissist. You deserve better. God and his word are outdated and they're irrelevant. Whereas Whitney Houston said, the greatest love is learning to love yourself. Just puked in my mouth. <laughs> so you just got to understand the prince of the power of the air, the culture creator in America, behind the scenes, the spiritual dimension that runs the physical, if you will, hates you and hates this reality and wants you to doubt God's justice, goodness, and love for you, his children. And if I could look at you and say anything, it would be, Despite what is going on in your life, if you are in Jesus Christ through faith, God is agape, love, 100%. 100%. An encouragement for you. This could be a whole other sermon, so I'm going to say it really quickly. Christians are really, really protective of the family, right? We're pro-family, generally. That's a good thing. Here's why. In the family are the two most pivotal, meaningful, 